0: You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around that bubble you bitch. Know? What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make it an offer. You talking to me? Are you the entertained? I don't know who you are. Why oh, so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, yes. I'm better. Mr. Lion! Snap out of it! you call me Mr. Oh, mother. you have no style. You to park all day, little dog. No. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week, and if you celebrated, recovered from St. Patrick's Day, mine was pretty mild, because it was a school night, and I'm getting old. Today. So I totally forgot what I decided to call the movie section. Was it like movie theater movie reviews? I think that's what it was. I don't know. Anyway, this week we've got Uma and King Richard. Uma is a horror movie set in a rural farm where a mother and daughter live an electricity free life. But when the mother's past catches up to her, her greatest fear may come true. Uma is a super low-budget film and one of the few that actually spent their money on the right things. I mean, it's got first-time filmmaker vibes for sure, and the visual effects do leave something to be desired, but if you like slow-burn horror movies, aka the ones that aggravate me to no end, you'll probably like this film too. The film leans hardcore into that generational trauma genre trope that's becoming super popular in films too, which I guess is better than remakes and sequels, but damn is the market getting flooded with them. Then we've got King Richard, which is a biopic about Richard Williams and his two crazy, amazing tennis prodigy children, Venus and Serena. I'm super duper behind on best picture films this year, and this is one of them, but I will, I think, have managed to see them all in time for the ceremony, so that's something. The irony of working in the motion picture business and having a film history podcast at the same time is that doing both majorly cuts down on your movie watching time. But I managed to drag my lazy bones to see King Richard last night, and I'm so glad that I did. I read Will Smith's autobiography late last year. It came out in, I think, October of 2021. And that dude wrote it a little prematurely because he's going to win that Oscar next weekend. King Richard is the best performance of any of Will Smith's that I've seen, and I've seen quite a few. This film is a beautiful, complex, and inspiring portrait of a family who fought their way into a club. Everyone told them they would never make it in through grit and determination. Don't let the tennis of it all get in the way of seeing this like it did for me. It's why I didn't see it when it came out in theaters. Also, I think it came out when I didn't have a car, but it was on HBO Max and I still didn't watch it and I regret it because I could have seen it like two more times since then. It is a wonderful movie. On to this week's topic, this week, we're covering probably the queen of the queens of the silent age and one of the only women to be somewhat welcomed into the early boys club of cinema, Mary Pickford. Today, we'll learn all about the woman whom changed screen acting forever, whose popularity created the celebrity fever we still have to this day. A woman whom stood up for herself against those more often than not douchey studio heads before becoming one herself. Not douchey though, just really intense. Despite once being the most famous woman in the world, she would die in obscurity and tried to take her motion picture legacy with her in a blaze of former glory. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Mary Pickford was born Gladys Marie Smith on April 8, 1892, although she'd later claim 1893 or 1894 cause ageism, in Toronto, Canada. Her father, John Charles Smith, was the son of English immigrants and worked a variety of odd jobs while her mother, Charlotte, was a seamstress. She had two younger siblings, Lottie and Jack, whom would follow their big sister's footsteps into acting to far lesser success. The patriarch was an alcoholic whom died of an alcohol-related accident in 1898 when Gladys was just five. When Charlotte found out that her husband had passed, she bashed her head against the wall repeatedly, drawing blood. Young Gladys witnessed this breakdown and realized, at just five years old, that she would have to carry the family going forward. Eventually, the family took in boarders to pay the bills. They couldn't know it, but this choice would change the fate of the Smith family. One of the boarders was a Mr. Murphy, who happened to be a theatrical stage manager. He would suggest that seven-year-old Gladys and six-year-old Lottie be given two small theatrical roles. Gladys portrayed a girl and a boy, while Lottie was cast in a silent part in the company's production of The Silent King at Toronto's Princess Theatre. Meanwhile, their mother played the organ. Soon, little Gladys would become the family breadwinner, working in theaters that frankly had similar conditions to sweatshops. Gladys hardly cared because she loved to act. Soon, Lil' Gladys was a name on the Toronto stage, ironically often playing poor orphaned children. Her mother and siblings would also stay in the theater, though in third-rate shows in the United States. At age 15, with no promise of work of any kind, Gladys made her way to Broadway, planning to quit acting altogether if she couldn't land a gig there. She set her sights on the most famous producer on Broadway at the time, David Belasco, and entered his office demanding to be seen. She, of course, was turned away. She returned several more times and one day in the lobby shouted, quote, my life depends upon seeing David Belasco. The staff were so amused by this outburst that they actually let her in to see him. By the way, do not try that today. It will go very differently for you. Belasco would give Mary her Broadway debut with a supporting role in the Warrens of Virginia in 1907. He also gave her a new name, Mary Pickford. While the newly minted Mary was making money as an actress, the money was not enough to feed her family. Mary's mother suggested she go see what was going on over at those motion picture studios that were popping up seemingly everywhere at this time. Mary wasn't super stoked on this idea, as the movies were seen at this time as poor people entertainment, for those who couldn't afford to go to the theater, and performing in them was akin to sex work. But the family needed money, so Mary headed to one of the most successful production companies in town, as she is one to do, Biograph Studios. Owned by failed actor-turned-director D.W. Griffith, yes, the birth of a nation dude, the company was churning out about a movie a day at this time. Keep in mind, movies were about 8 to 10 minutes in length at this time, but I guess that technically still counts as a movie. On April 19th, 1909... Griffith screen-tested Mary at the company's New York studio for a role in their upcoming film, Pippa Passes. Mary did not get the lead, but Griffith liked her enough to hire her for future work. Mary quickly grasped that movie acting was just simplified stage acting and managed to get hired by Griffith for $10 a day, double what he was paying his other actors. Now, at this time, Griffith really liked to have his actresses be, like, super bubbly and feminine. One historian described the performances as bunny on speed. But Mary refused to act in this manner. She didn't think it looked natural. And adding little real world touches and affectations into her performances, like how she touched an actor or adjusted a piece of costume, like, you know, like hat on her head or just kind of like moved around the space as a human person would, Mary changed the way actors performed on screen from the overly gesturing performances of her predecessors, which was known as semaphore acting, to this more subtle kind that Mary did, which resonated with the audiences of the day far more. You don't need to gesture widely as if on stage on film anyway, as the camera, and therefore the audience's view, is significantly closer. Because of all of this, and just her prowess as an actress, cinema fans went wild for Mary Pickford. And Biograph tried to hide that fact from her real hard. Initially, they kept press clippings and fan mail hidden from Mary. At this time, screen credits were weren't really a thing, so when the press asked for the name of this incredible new actress, Biograph lied. The production companies at this time didn't really want the actors' names out there, but rather wanted audiences to become familiar with the production companies' names. For example, the name biograph would draw people to the cinemas, not Mary Pickford. If the actors became the main draw of cinema, the studios knew that they'd eventually have to pay them way more, which they of course did not want to do. Since Biograph would not reveal Mary's real name, people just started calling her the Biograph Girl, a name that would be tied to both Mary and fellow actress Florence Lawrence. Mary, by the way, was completely oblivious to all of this, all levels of this, as she was working hard. She made 43 films in 1909 alone. Oh, and also she'd like fallen in love and stuff. His name was Owen Moore, an Irish-born American actor whom was also employed at Biograph. The two married in 1911 when Mary was 18, he was 24. He reminded her of her father, and I'm sure you can deduce knowing what I told you from a few minutes ago, that that wasn't necessarily a good thing. In fact, her husband and both of her younger siblings struggled with alcohol. Mary would often have to deal with the fallout of all three, shelling out money to keep their names out of the papers. Mary and Owen would divorce in 1920 after a near decade of a very tumultuous relationship, which included, you know, the drinking, and he was very violent, and it was just a whole bad situation altogether. Mary would remain at Biograph until 1911, after making more than 80 films for the company. The following year, Mary starred in films for Carl Lemley's Independent Moving Pictures Company. IMP, fun fact, was absorbed into Universal Pictures in 1912, so that's what happened to that. Unhappy with the company's creative standards at this time, Mary returned to work with Griffith in 1912. Some highlights from this time included Friends, as well as The Female of the Species. That year, Pickford also introduced Lillian Gish and her sister Dorothy to Griffith, but that is a story for next week. Mary would make her last biograph picture, The New York Hat, in late 1912. Mary very briefly returned to Broadway, but soon found herself missing film. So, in 1913, she decided to make the change for good. She picked up her roots, which included her family, and moved out to Hollywood to work for Adolph Zucker, aka that Paramount dude. But at this time, his piece of the pie that would become a part of Paramount was known as famous players in famous plays. For some more information on this time and what Paramount was kind of going for at this time, check out my September 6th, 2020 episode on Paramount Pictures. When Mary moved out West, Hollywood was still in its primitive stage, but her third feature film in town would change everything. A lot of what was being doled out to the audiences at this time was like stuffy Victorian period pieces, which people were getting tired of. So 1913's Tess of the Storm Country was a very welcome change. The film took place on the Scottish Moors, with a Santa Monica beach standing in for the locale, with Mary playing a spunky orphan, whom wasn't afraid to stand up to authority. The film also brought front and center Mary's iconic thick curly hair, which audiences adored and obsessed over. This film is also the only of Mary's from her first year in Hollywood to survive in its completed form. Tess of the Storm Country was a massive smash, breaking box office records and essentially creating the movie magazine industry, which would eventually lead to the tabloids. It was through these magazines that everyone would obsess over Mary. All of this, mixed together, would also kick off the star system in Hollywood, so yeah, quite the train reaction. This time around, Mary knew she was a big deal, so Two years and a bevy of box office smash films after Tess, Mary demanded she be paid half a million dollars a year, which even by modern standards, that ain't chump change. She was also the most famous woman in the motion pictures, second only to Charlie Chaplin in popularity. She also wanted full control over all of her films because she believed she would do a better job making them. She knew what her fans wanted to see. She was soon given control over six films a year, many of which were based on children's stories. This included Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm and A Little Princess. In addition to her base salary, Mary was given half of her film's profits with a guarantee of $1,040,000, which is about $18.7 million in today money, making her the first actress to sign a million-dollar contract. She also became vice president of Pickford Film Corporation. In fact, Mary may be the most successful producer of the silent film era. So successful, in fact, that in August 1918, when Mary refused Zucker's terms for a contract renewal, she was offered $250,000 from Zucker to leave the motion picture business forever. She, of course, refused and moved to First National Pictures. One of the first things Mary shot with them was 1919's Daddy Longlegs. She was 25 when the film was shot, and Mary, who was either a little under or a little over 5 feet, depending on the source, could blend in seamlessly with the children, whom played the other orphans in the film, whom were all around 7 years of age. Mary understood the struggles of childhood better than most, And this brought a vulnerability and authenticity to the little girl part she played, even though she was three times older than her scene partners, especially in this film. Her betrayal of child abuse was light years ahead of its time. During World War I, Mary made several war propaganda films. She also promoted the sale of war bonds. In a single speech in Chicago, she sold an estimated $5 million worth of bonds. Despite being Canadian, she was, you know, a symbol of Americana, and she was christened by the U.S. Navy as an official little sister, the Army named two cannons after her, and also made her an honorary colonel. During the tour, she also caught the Spanish flu in 1918, but recovered. Also on the tour, she would meet her soon-to-be-second husband, Douglas Fairbanks. The two began a relationship on the sly as both were married to other people when they met. It would soon become a relationship for the ages. Mary was terrified that she would lose her career if she got divorced, because it was very taboo at this time, but took the chance anyway. Days after the divorce to Owen was finalized, Mary and Douglas were married and went off on a whirlwind honeymoon. Thousands of people mobbed them during a simple walk in a London park. Similar situations would follow them in every country and locale they visited. They were superstars in a time before anyone knew what to do about the public fear of seeing a famous person, so this caused... Quite a lot of chaos. Everything the couple did became news, from building a house, which they called Pick Fair, to any dinner party or event they attended. The two had become the king and queen of the movie industry. Everyone wanted an invite to their home. If you were like tippy-top famous or fancy in the 1920s, regardless of the industry you were in, you more than likely at one time or another were invited to the four-story 25-room Pick Fair. At the end of the day though, Mary was an artist first and foremost, and soon tired of playing little girls. She was in her late 20s and she felt it was time to grow up on screen. Her audiences and the studios that were financing her at this time said no. While the little girl parts had only been a small section of her career, the damage had been done and Mary likely became the first actor to be fully typecast. In 1925, years after she'd even become her own boss, Mary asked PhotoPlay magazine readers to write in what parts she should play next. They gave the then-32-year-old a list that primarily consisted of parts for, like, 12-year-old girls. For example, Anne of Green Gables and Heidi. Not bad roles, but incredibly inappropriate for a 32-year-old. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Back in 1919, Mary, along with D.W. Griffith, soon-to-be-husband Douglas Fairbanks, and Charlie Chaplin, the group formed the independent film production company United Artists so that they could have more control over their films. Movie mogul Sam Goldwyn, upon learning of this, declared famously, quote, The lunatics have taken over the asylum. Mary would become the one of the four dealing with the day-to-day while the others were off making films for other production companies. Why? Probably money. But Mary literally became the person in the group project who ends up doing all the work. She also knew that United Artists needed money to make movies, and she also knew her audience incredibly well, so she made Pollyanna in 1920, which she hated doing, because little girl part again, but that her audiences, of course, loved. The film made over $1 million, which was very good back then. Despite not even making a film with them for many years, Chaplin and Mary were often at odds with each other over the direction of United Artists, and her biggest issue with him was that he was off making films for other studios, and United Artists got zilch and nada of the money that those films were making. Why did he put his name on something if he wasn't going to work on it? At the end of the day, Chaplin just didn't have the business sense that Mary did. She could see the booming business of the pictures and the opulent movie houses that were springing up. These theaters were bringing new audience members in. And unfortunately, something that she couldn't see was that these audiences no longer wanted the old stars. After a decade or so of pretty much getting to call her own shots, something entered the film industry that would be Mary and her husband and so many others is undoing. The talkies. My Best Girl from 1927 would be Mary's last silent film, which would also star an actor named Charles Buddy Rogers. Their on-screen chemistry was sweet but electric. With the introduction of sound, Fairbanks ditched Hollywood to go hunt tigers to lick his wounds, as rich white dudes are wont to do, leaving his wife alone to pick up the pieces. She was alone for months. Then he got busted for having an affair with a society flapper named Sylvia Ashley. The two carried on an affair for years, marrying in 1936 and divorcing three years later. If her name sounds familiar, it's because she would later become Clark Gable's fourth wife. Frankly, there was more bad in Mary's life at this time than good. Her mother passed away in 1928, and in her grief, Mary chopped off her iconic hair into a bob, a move that made front page news. Not wanting to let go of her acting career, Mary tried her hands at talkies, making 1929s coquette, but the film revealed another problem. Mary was nearly 40, which was ancient for a Hollywood actress, and audiences didn't like seeing their little princess as an adult woman. Plus, most of her former fellow performers had either left Hollywood or been destroyed by the industry, so many looked at her as the last girl at the party who just didn't know when to call it quits. Some good came out of the talkies, though, and Mary would win her first Oscar for Coquette at the second Academy Awards. Marianne Douglas had been founding members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences who put on the Oscars, so this didn't come as much of a surprise that she won one of them, but hey, the woman was busting her ass if the Oscars had existed You know, at any point in her career, she would have won a boatload of them, so, you know, whatever. Coquette was also a box office smash, as many wanted to hear what Mary sounded like. This novelty wore off after just one film, and she made a few more, but none of them had anywhere near the success of her glory days, so Mary's last film as an actress was 1933's Secrets. Mary's 16-year marriage to Douglas Fairbanks, though they had been estranged for some time by this point, came to an end in 1936, like I said, after several attempts at reconciliation, mostly on Mary's part. But Douglas had moved on with the flapper lady. Douglas Fairbanks Jr., whom was senior son from his first marriage, later recounted that both his father and stepmother regretted that they didn't reconcile. In 1937, Mary remarried to her former co-star Charles Buddy Rogers. The couple adopted two children, a six-year-old in 1943 and a baby in 1944. Motherhood did not come naturally to the actress, whom had highly problematic relationships with her kids throughout their lives. She criticized their physical imperfections incessantly, and both children later said their mother was too self-absorbed to provide real maternal love. She, frankly, just missed the adoration and attention of her fans and the public at large, and her children weren't enough for her to fill that hole in her life, which is incredibly sad. Mary also struggled with the idea of being a stay-at-home mother. She'd been working full-time since she was eight years old. How could she possibly stop that now to be home all the time? Mary continued producing, but no longer starring, in films for United Artists, as she attempted to figure out what life after being the most famous woman in the world was like. She was really the first actress to do this, so there was no roadmap, and she struggled extensively. To make matters worse, Mary's younger siblings, both of whom had been lifelong alcoholics, died in the mid-30s from complications due to their conditions. In order to give back to the industry that had given her her entire life, and after seeing former colleagues like D.W. Griffith die in obscurity and poverty, Mary started the motion picture Home for the Aging, somewhere that older performers and filmmakers could be taken care of in their twilight years. This was not the first time she had done something like this. At the end of World War I, Mary had set up the Motion Picture Relief Fund, an organization to help financially needy actors. It is still around to this day, as is the Home for the Aging. Aging. In 1955, she published her memoir, Sunshine and Shadows. Mary and Charlie Chaplin remained partners in united artists, ironically, for many years. Chaplin left the company in 1955, and Mary followed suit in 1956, selling her remaining shares for $3 million. In her twilight years, after successfully managing to avoid the same fate as her siblings and so many of her friends and co-workers, Mary began to drink extensively. She eventually withdrew from society, seeing only a handful of people at Pickfair. By the 1960s, she was only receiving visitors via the telephone in her bedroom. Mary had bought the rights to many of her early silent films with the intention of burning them on her death, but in 1970, she agreed to donate 50 of her biograph films to the American Film Institute. Not because she had a change of heart, or maybe she did, but unlikely. It mostly seemed to have to do with the fact that when she announced in the press that she was going to burn them all, it didn't quite spring up the attention she had hoped it would, so I think she just kind of went, well, screw it. In 1976, she received an Academy Honorary Award for a contribution to American film. She accepted the award from her home, as she was quite frail at this time. In the footage from the ceremony, you can tell she's likely had like a stroke by this time, She lo- and she looks very, very frail. The piece that was done on her for her lifetime achievement... So everything she did for cinema focused mostly on the little girl part she played and not on the massive contribution she had in the industry at large. She was a founding member of the Academy. She was one of the first women, if not the first women, to be the head of her own studio. She changed the way acting was done on screen. Just the list goes on and on and on and on. And they went, oh, wasn't she cute when she was that little princess? That's all it really focused on, which is a travesty in its own right. On May 29, 1979, at the age of 87, Mary Pickford died at a Santa Monica Hospital from complications from a cerebral hemorrhage she had suffered the week before. She is buried in the Garden of memory of the Forest Lawn Memorial Park Cemetery in Glendale, California, the same place as Clara Bow and Theda Barra. When she died, Mary had been mostly forgotten by audiences. Remember, there was no home video at this time. There was no internet. So there wasn't really a way to access these films. They were just kind of like stuck in the past for the most part. And because she'd been mostly forgotten, no major tributes were given to this once heavy hitter of cinema, this trailblazer of the art form. In recent years, like maybe the last 20 years or so, like many of the other forgotten stars of the silent era, there have been efforts made to preserve Mary's films, and because of the length of her career and because she worked at a lot of the bigger studios, quite a few of them survive. With the movement to preserve these old films, new awareness has been brought to Mary Pickford's career that hasn't been around in probably 50 years. Her films now play in art house theaters, and you can see them on YouTube. And people are once again finding Mary Pickford and falling in love with her all over the world. Even a century after she began her career with that cherubic face, that curly hair, her business sense, her mastery of her art, she can still drive people to the theaters. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode, at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. I had a nice merch week, mostly thanks to my friends, but thank you anyway. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, one of the few silent actors to thrive in both silent and talking pictures, a woman who would have a 75-year career and would become known as the first lady of American cinema, Lillian Gish. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.